Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in Science, Technology, and Society. Welcome, and thanks very much for joining us today. I just spoke with Bill Clancy about his new book, Working on Mars, Voyages of Scientific Discovery with the Mars Exploration Rovers. The MIT Press published this in 2012. It's a wonderfully readable book, as well as being a really, really fascinating book that speaks to several different but related and I think mutually informative areas of science studies, of the history of science, and of the history of technology. And so the book uses a, a case study an ethnography and a history of the voyages of the Mars Exploration Rover to unpack and to explore the nature of fieldwork, the nature of scientific exploration, the ways that virtual technologies and virtual telepresence really have reshaped and reformed what it means to talk about scientific identity and also the identity of engineers. It looks at spaces of and media of transdisciplinary work in the sciences. It looks at the ways that work on the earth and work on other planets map onto each other in terms of the history of science and technology. And it's also just a really fascinating read and one that's very, very timely given um, the strong media presence around the Curiosity rover right now. And so I highly, highly recommend this for anybody who's interested in the history of technology, the history of science, history of exploration, histories of Mars exploration, or just a really good story. It was a super, super pleasure to read the book, and it was really a pleasure to talk with Phil about it. So I hope you enjoy, and I hope you go read the book afterwards because it's really wonderful. We're here today to talk with William Clancy about his new book, Working on Mars, Voyages of Scientific Discovery with the Mars Exploration Rovers. Welcome to New Books in Science, Technology, and Society, Bill, and thanks very much for making the time to talk with me, and on a Saturday of all days. I really appreciate it. My pleasure. I'm looking forward to it. So, Bill, could you start us off by saying kind of a little bit about your background so that listeners can understand how you came to this project? And specifically, what brought you to the field of the history of science and technology um, in the first place? Well, I've always had very broad interests, and I was very proud that uh, when I got my uh, uh, Bachelor of Arts degree at Rice University, I had... uh, courses in 13 different departments. So I've always been interested in philosophy, psychology, uh, writing, computer science. Um, And I eventually got my degree at Stanford in artificial intelligence, which uh, brings together all of those topics, actually. And um, robotics was on my mind, but in the 1970s, uh, it wasn't voice controlled or um, controlled in sophisticated ways. You had to write very complicated programs to do very simple things. Um, and in the 1980s, a new field came up called cognitive science, which was a merger of all the top topics I just mentioned, plus uh, anthropology and linguistics. So it's bringing together the different facets of how we study the human mind and the nature of intelligence. And that, for me, really rounded out the topic of artificial intelligence 
because I always felt that it should be grounded in a proper understanding of how does the brain work and how do people actually think and solve problems. And by the late 1980s, something had happened where the social scientists had come in, especially anthropologists and uh, social psychologists, and they were pointing out to us how intelligence was actually something enacted that occurred in the real world as people interacted and talked to each other and as they worked with um, various tools they had, uh, even drawing diagrams and so on. So it really brought in the notion of reasoning and thought to something that was a behavior and, and very broad. Um, and there was a topic in there that was of fundamental interest that I came to realize when I joined NASA in the late 90s, that we had completely, um, we had too narrowly looked at it. And it was what we called the nature of scientific discovery. And there were a few programs, um, sometimes called early machine learning programs in the 1980s, that would try to emulate how basic scientific discoveries had been made. And they would invariably start with a set of numbers and try to derive equations to show how the, the, what the, were the relationships uh, among the you know, various parameters. And by the late 90s, I should say in the 90s, I had yet another kind of reworking, almost a new degree for myself. I started working at the Institute for Research on Learning in uh, here in Menlo Park in Palo Alto, California. Um, and this was predominantly a group of social scientists with a few cognitive AI psychology sorts like myself. And there I learned the methods of ethnography of studying how people actually did what they did in the settings of their everyday lives. Mm -hmm. And I was working in, um, in uh, office places for uh, the New York, New England phone company called 9X at the time and Xerox at a customer care center and at a clinic in um, Pasadena, California, a medical clinic. So I learned how to do observational work and how to record and describe um, the kind of interactions that the social scientists have been telling us were important for cognition. Well, now you fast forward, and in the late 90s, actually 1998, I um, received an appointment at NASA Ames Research Center as uh, Chief Scientist in Human-Centered Computing, and a group of uh, my colleagues invited me to go to Devon Islands in the uh, Canadian Northern Arctic. It's about 900 miles from the Arctic Circle. And they said they were going to uh, pretend that they were on Mars. And there were gonna be geologists there and biologists and robotics people. And they were gonna be in a crater that uh, had no plants or trees. Um, it was quite barren and uh, some of the landforms resembled what you might see on Mars as they had been formed by glaciers and, uh, and runoff and um, ice below the ground, changing the patterns in the land over many uh, tens of thousands of years. Uh, and so my computer science colleagues um, were going to go there for um, a week or two, and um, they asked if I wanted to come along. So I brought my camera and my tent, um, 
And I, I had like the most wonderful thing of all the different interests that I had were now all brought together. Um, backpacking from the Boy Scouts, uh, <laughs> taking photographs and movies, uh, and watching other people work, <laughs> and, uh, and just thinking about you know, what is going on here. So I applied the ethnographic skills that I had learned in the office from some really top-notch um, anthropologists who taught me how to formalize my notes and label my tapes and, and all of that. Um, and I suddenly, it's the kind of thing that it doesn't take more than about an hour or two, though, though maybe I'm condensing my experience, to, for you to suddenly go like, oh my gosh, here's NASA, the Space Exploration Group. What do they know about the nature of exploration? Who has ever studied how exploration occurs? In reality, when you put a scientist in a crater that's 10 miles across, where do they go? What do they do first? What do they do in the first week? What are they going to want to do in the second week? And so I started uh, hanging around with following on the uh, all-terrain vehicles with my camera, um, going out with uh, the geologists and biologists mostly on what we call traverses, we go out for a few hours or half a day. And I documented how they were studying the crater. Mm-hmm. And started to see all of those differences. So that was the, the beginning of the book, of seeing how scientific discovery actually occurred in the field in uh, what's called field science. And um, that was then years later is, is how uh, it all came together with the Mars rovers. Now, the, this is this is totally fascinating. I could, I think, I could probably listen to you relate this story um, for hours and hours. And this really comes through in the book too. So, one of the things that's really wonderful for a reader of this book is that it really reads not only because it does read um, in this way as a very in-depth and very careful and a very meticulous exploration of exploration um, in the context of the field work that you did, but it also reads as a really fabulous narrative. Um, and this really, I think, comes out in your own narrativization right now of what brought you to the project. So the book looks at the practice and experience of scientists and also engineers who were part of the Mars Exploration Rover missions. So you've already talked a little bit about what brought you to this kind of endeavor and this general field of endeavor. What um, came or what kinds of circumstances led you to decide to write a book length treatment of this? And how did you come to the uh, position where you were able to do the kind of field work specifically at NASA that led to this um, book that we're talking about today? Sure. Um, so I mentioned now that the beginning of this field work on Devon Island, and that continued over the next uh, five, six years, actually, I made five trips to Devon Island, spending several months there altogether. And I started working in Utah at what was called the Mars Desert Research Station, where we were simulating being on Mars, wearing suits and doing studies and so on. Um, so I had quite a background by the time of the Mars Rover mission of knowing what field science looked like and knowing what it would be like if people were on Mars and how they might study it. Um, and now move forward again and put me in Pasadena, California, among the scientists in a dark room during the first months of the Mars Exploration Rover mission in uh, February of 2004, I believe. Um, and 
I'm sitting there and you have to realize there's like uh, 75 scientists in the room. And as I said, it's dark and they're doing a scientific study of Mars. And that's when, again, now this kind of eureka moment occurs and you go, how is it possible that they could be doing field science on another planet? They're not physically there. And yet they are truly exploring the surface of Mars. And then how could this be tolerable to them as they're so used to working alone, which is what I had observed in the field. Mm -hmm. And, <clears throat> excuse me, mm -hmm. they, uh, they're used to touching the rock. They're used to scrambling up and standing on a hill and surveying. So all of these conflicts came to mind and they just raised the natural issue of um, how was field science possible and yet it was demonstrably occurring. And then the question, um, how was it changed? Because this had to be a new way of doing field science. So I, I formulated a question and there were various opportunities I had to uh, uh, give talks and eventually interview the, the scientists. And the main question I, I came upon is, what's it like to work with a rover? Um, and, and so that's what led to the interviews that, that led to the book. Great. Now, the book itself, as we get into the first chapters here, it does all of the things that you're mentioning um, in terms of telling the story, in terms of exploring what it means to do field science. And it also really wonderfully contributes to some very important areas of STS as a field in addition to doing this. So in addition to looking at some of the motivating questions like, can people remotely conduct field science on another planet using a mobile programmable laboratory? So the nature of a, a laboratory that moves and is programmable comes in. How does working with that kind of a lab change field science? You also explore the question of how does working on a science team with a robotic intermediary, so with a, an intermediary and a tool that is a robot, change what it means not only to do field work, but also to be a scientist? And then finally, and you mentioned this early in the book, how does virtual technology and working with a robot affect the identity of those who use it. So this is a book that's about field science. It's about Mars exploration. It's about what a laboratory is. It's also in an important way about virtual technologies and the identity of a scientist or an engineer. And so this is an important part of the work that the book does, and it's a really fascinating part of it. So let's get right into the chapters. The first chapter takes us into this context and, and, and introduces your initial observations of the work that the Mars Exploration Rover scientists and engineers were doing. So let's talk um, to kind of set the stage because the book does this so well. For listeners, um, perhaps who haven't had a chance yet to read the book, although I hope they will after listening to this, let's talk about the working conditions of these scientists. You're, you've already talked about the fact that they're in a room in the dark. They actually lived on local Mars time for three months, as you you describe this. So can you talk about that? Can you talk about this sort of the living conditions of these scientists, the fact that they're counting days um, or counting time, not in days, but in souls, the fact that they're living on Mars time, and how does this um, kind of shape the kinds of arguments that mm -hmm. you're making in this book? And why is that important mm -hmm. to understand this story? Yes. Um, first of all, when we say local Mars time, 
it, it's uh, now interesting to point out that we actually have two Mars missions occurring at the same time. And those are the rovers that were colloquially called uh, Spirit and Opportunity. And so you actually have two different science teams and engineering um, teams that assisted them who were living and working according to the time of their rover on Mars. And we placed the rovers quite deliberately on opposite sides of the planet. So oddly enough, the landing places were very, very important for, for controlling and running the rovers. Now you need one more fact here. The rovers are solar powered. So that means that, um, they had to be placed in an appropriate position throughout the seasons of the year, um, and we were concerned about the uh, uh, not just the angle of the arrays, but the amount of dust that was on them and so on. So the bottom line is that you would run the rovers during the day when the light was on the panels, and you would be shut down during the night. And what they developed, and this was probably the most important concept, I would say, in um, doing exploration with these rovers, was what they called uh, a single-day uh, commanding, or that basically um, you would send a program or a set of commands to the rover, uh, each rover, early in the morning, you know, after the sun has come up for that rover, it would then execute that program completely unsupervised, no feedback, no information whatsoever being exchanged back to Earth. And then at the end of the day, the rover would transmit uh, some or all of the data that he collected, photographs and spectral analyses and so on. Um, and then the scientists would come to work. So from the rover's perspective, the scientists came to work about mid-late afternoon. They would analyze the data, and by the time they had gone to dinner, um, they would have a sense of um, what they were going to do the next day. And so during the night, the rover's night, um, the engineers would be preparing the program so it could be uh, sent the next day. So all of this was would have been interesting in itself if you had people like working during the day in Pasadena and another team working during the night, which is effectively what we had. But it was the day and, and night on Mars, which was 40 minutes longer than on Earth. So the way I like to think about it, because you know, when you work there and you're in a hotel and you're down the street and you, and you have to come into the office to Jet Propulsion Lab in Pasadena and the foothills there, um, you have to think about you know, what, what's my life really like to be 24 hours and 40 minutes for every day, what we call it. It's a Martian day. It's called the Sol, S-O-L. And the way I thought of it is, well, according to the the guard at the gate, I was coming into work 40 minutes later every day. And that's the way to think about how the day moves and so on. So that affects um, where can you go to eat dinner or to have breakfast because the restaurants are not on Mars time. <laughs> 
And so it, it made the group also very tight-knit because they were like in their own little microcosm there in the dark room and going home or coming to work at 3 a.m. and so on. Uh, so that gives you some idea of the conditions. You're really oriented towards in the clocks on the wall and the lighting. Um, gets you to know that you have the, you're living according to the night and day of your rover on Mars. Right. Now you used the phrase um, a little bit earlier on from the robot's perspective, which actually brings me to the uh, next thing that I wanted to ask you about. This chapter raises the kinds of complications that emerge when these field science field scientists rather are working remotely, but are creating a public presentation that suggests that the rover works independently. So the rover becomes the hero of the story. The rover is identified as quote a field a field geologist. So you have a robot geologist. Can you talk about this um, in this context? Yes, I'm really glad you brought that up because, in terms of the motivation and driver for this book, you know where my passion was. It probably all started with a press release in the year 2000 that announced that Mar NASA was going to send a robotic geologist to Mars. And I was actually on Devon Island in July of 2000 when this was announced. And I remember telling people, um, everyone around me, I said, this is horrible. That you, this, is, uh, uh, this is no way to describe uh, what the robot is. It's not a geologist. Um, it's, and it, of course, it related for me to my, by then, you know, 20, 25 years of experience in artificial intelligence, which was a field just full of hype, where you'd have programs called the reasoner, and it wasn't doing anything like what people were capable of doing when they were reasoning, but they called the program the reasoner. So I was very sensitive, and this again harkens back to my background in philosophy, that our language for describing our technology, and as a cognitive scientist, our um, careful articulation of how, what is the robot doing and what are the people doing and how do the capabilities uh, differ. I felt you had to be very precise about these in order to be a good scientist. And I was always, it seems, swimming upstream because I was mostly surrounded by very good engineers. And engineers are not necessarily into all the scientific talk. So that phrase, robotic geology, really got under my skin. And um, I, I noticed as well that in the press release, they referred to um, the previous rover as being a cousin of the new rover. And they used all kinds of anthropomorphisms like that. So this became a theme of um, my wanting to explain philosophically, psychologically, technically, that the rover was not a geologist on Mars. But as you've said, it was an intermediary. It was a robotic laboratory. And uh, I, I had a phrase, some, one of the things I had learned earlier in cognitive science was a phrase from John Dewey, who was a, a very famous American philosopher and educator and psychologist. And he had said that he was trying to clarify the nature of the curriculum that we would teach to students uh, as a guide, a map. And he said it, to refer to the curriculum as knowledge 
as what it was we wanted the students to learn was to confuse a carpenter with his tools. And I, so for me, that's what was happening with all of these descriptions coming out of NASA, that it was confusing the geologists and the scientists with their tools. And, and you could see it by calling the tools a geologist. So, so that was um, a good part. And as you said, it, it's uh, what I wanted to bring out. But I must say, I, now we get to this issue of identity and the hero and so on. I came to see and that there was a logic to why we referred to the robot this way. And what this is something you learn in anthropology, that you study a group of people, and it's perfectly fine. In fact, it's good if you are looking at something and it looks stupid to you. Because as soon as something looks stupid and you're dealing with very smart people, you're probably not understanding the world from their perspective. And so you're always asking yourself, what work is this doing for them? How is this helpful in their interactions with each other, in their being an organized group who are accomplishing something by consensus and jointly and so on? Um, so that that was, again, a kind of a background. So I could be very indignant and use that as a thread, but at the same time, keep reminding myself, there's something here. There's, there's, a, there's another story, and it took a long time. To, to realize, and I think the clue finally was the realize, recognizing how this related to the anonymity of the individual, that um, the nature of doing field science with a robotic laboratory, whether it will be undersea in the Earth or uh, on the surface of Mars or orbiting uh, Saturn, um, as, as we do today, um, that the individual scientists would um, have a chance to speak up and would represent their own fields. It was something I, I came to appreciate how important that was. Um, but you would not find their names in the New York Times, say. You would say, you would have a report that said, Opportunity has con continued its exploration of Meridiani. Uh, spirit has uh, stumbled upon an iron meteorite uh, in, on this hill. Uh, it wouldn't say that John Smith and, um, and Jane Smith have um, suggested and decided that the group should go to this crater, or they should stay longer, or that they should apply a particular instrument that was all hidden, never, ever mentioned. And so you now needed a way to talk about what was happening. And, and very naturally, it was uh, the rover, the rover as a, a way of talking about the group and, and the entire mission. And now Curiosity has a Twitter account. So this is a, this is, there's so many ways. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That, that they have a personality and it becomes a way of us viewing what is a very complicated organization as, as I've laid out and a very complex process. It's kind of a portal 
that's a great example. How uh, yes, and and the rovers uh, had uh, Spirit is no longer operating, but Opportunity, I believe, you had a Twitter account too at one time. Okay. So as we move further into the story, um, we talked a little bit about the nature of what it means to, to say robot geologists. But one of the things that you mentioned early on in our conversation, and that looms large in the argument of the book, is that you were interested early on in this process in not just robotic exploration, but also in the nature of fieldwork and exploration. And chapter three, takes us right into this. So chapter three explores the nature of field science, especially field science on earth, and considers how this telerobotic um, context and these tools changes the nature of scientific practice. So you, one of the things that you do in this chapter that's really important to um, sort of motivating the rest of the argument of the book is you compare what's going on in the MER mission to the history of field science in other contexts and specifically to Humboldtian science. So can you talk a little bit about that as a kind of motivating um, element of the way you're setting up the argument in the book? Why is that important to you? And how? what do we need to understand about that in order to understand the work that you're doing in this part of the book? Mm-hmm. I, I think one, one way to understand this chapter is uh, to realize that I was writing the book um, under some degree of guidance, and um, approval of the NASA History Division at the NASA headquarters in Washington. And I had received a, a very small seed grant to pay for a few months of what turned out to be about five years of work, um, a seed grant from the History Division um, to, uh, to begin the work. And so they, as part of that, had sent my book out, my manuscripts, the initial draft I had of about 90 pages to historians, uh, space science historians. And historians, very naturally, put things in a historical perspective. (laughs) So I was oriented to making connections like that, to go back to the early exploration of Earth. Um, And I was also, well, so let me say about in the historical sense, the scientists themselves were making frequent reference to the early missions, such as the the explorations of Captain Cook uh, in uh, the Pacific, and and referring, they were naming places on Mars according to uh, various landforms and capes and bays that were found around the Portugal, for example, in Africa. Um, so this is the, the fact that the scientists were thinking of what they were doing as a um, mission of discovery was a, was another um, reason why I was drawn into that. Um, so it was in my reading. So I went back and looked at, at Captain Cook's explorations, and and I wanted to think about in what sense is this a voyage of scientific discovery? Because that was another phrase that I was used over the last few decades by NASA. We called the uh, two of the most far-reaching, or the, the farthest-reaching spacecraft that we've sent that. Um, one of them has now left um, the entire solar system, one of the voyagers. So 
the nation, the notion that field science could involve a voyage was in the back of my mind. Well, to put all that together, I, I soon learned about von Humboldt and started reading about his work and discovered that um, there was a connection that he in you know, this is, I go into the book in, in some detail, and probably some more detail than I would recall now, which is just as well. That's fine. That uh, <laughs> the, uh, he, he had what we call a holistic view of the area he was studying. So it wasn't just um, like if you were interested in geology, looking at the land, but you would consider the atmosphere, you would consider the plants, you would consider the climate. And that was very much, I realized, how we were studying Mars. We always studied it holistically. So when we go, uh, we had a mission called Phoenix to the Arctic of Mars, and uh, it landed in 2008 and, and operated for about three months in, uh, in the icy, cold areas uh, of Mars. And there we would see dust and, and minerals on the ground that we knew had been distributed by the winds from elsewhere in Mars. So you always have to think about where, what I'm looking at, where did it come from? Maybe thousands of miles away. And, and there's much more about the climate and how the climate has changed on Mars and so on. So this was Humboldt um, bringing many different types of instruments to uh, study uh, Mars from the several disciplinary perspectives all at once while he was on a, an expedition. Um, and, and that was the connection I was making. Great. I want to say one more thing about the field science. I realized that the historians did not know what field science was. And when I talked to them about, I, I, was, I realized I was trying to get across what was the work that the, the scientists were doing. And that's, of course, where the title of the book eventually came from, Working on Mars. I, I wanted to make it clear that the work wasn't just occurring in Pasadena, California, or as they went back to their home universities uh, you know, at, in different countries around the world uh, on the planet Earth. But the work was, in a real fundamental sense, occurring on the planet of Mars. You were moving, you were using the wheels of the rover to disturb the, the soil to see what was underneath it. You were um, abrading rocks with this um, little kind of a drill. Um, you were taking photographs and, and, uh, and spectral um, uh, analyses. Um, and, and so I realized that to understand what the work was, you had needed to know what field science was. And, and, and so it was partly from the reviews of the historians that I, I went into the, that detail. And that chapter was added in, a, in part of the, uh, the final revisions of the book. Great. Well, this actually really nicely brings us to um, the kinds of questions that motivate the next several chapters of the book. And so what we're going to do is talk about some of them in conjunction. So after a chapter in which you introduce um, really an out growth of the kind of thing that you just mentioned, the importance of the virtual presence of the work um, actually being done among the scientists um, and the engineers to some extent involved in this project. And you consider in that chapter um, how thinking about this in terms of telepresence or virtuality, virtual presence, actually helps us understand the kind of work that's being done there. You talk about the importance of the commanding of the rover, of the rover as a daily practice, as a daily 
process. And then you bring us into um, a chapter that's really, really um, interesting that focuses on the identity of the scientists. So in chapter five, you talk about two two, um, rather synergistic aspects of the way that the identity of the scientists that you were interviewing and working with was formulated. At the same time, you mentioned that it was really important for each of them to find a personal kind of niche identity in the project, but at the same time, they had to function as kind of a blended identity of this joint enterprise. And one of the things that, as you demonstrate here um, allowed this kind of blended identity to emerge, to form, was the idea that they're working with an integrated instrument. They're working with, um, as you put it, I think, early in our conversation, before we started recording, they're working with the robot as a tool of collaboration, and in some sense as a tool of, um, we can think of it as creating this kind of merged identity. So I wonder if you could spend a little bit of time talking about that, the importance of these kind of dual identities for the scientists and the importance of the robot um, in facilitating and embodying this kind of collaboration. Yes, yes. Uh, As I'm sure the listener can see, there's many topics there. And what's interesting is how um, they all together build a picture. And I guess the thread I would pick it up on is that we we talked about the anonymity of the scientists and the robots as the hero and, and so on. And it makes it sound like the rover is way out there and we are here and um, it's and it's actually why for many of the some of the space historians they started referring to the rovers as explorers and the spacecraft as explorers, which was something I was uh, seeking to uh, demolish that kind of talk. But as I got into it, um, I saw I could hear the way they talked that they spoke not about the rover in the third person, just the rover in the third person as spirit did this and then sucked and continued its work and so on. But most of their talk was in the first person. They said, we could see, we wondered if we could go over there. Could, could um, Could we get around this rock and 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 so on? And I, my my favorite expression was how Jim Rice said um, to me: "My orientation every day was of being there, of two boots on the ground." And you start to realize that in their minds they are at the point on Mars. They are standing where the rover is. They are five feet, four inches tall. They have stereo vision with these remarkable eyeglasses that can see iron minerals and and read heat signatures. And they are embodied in the rover. And when they're thinking about what the rover will do tomorrow, they're looking out from where the rover is and thinking they can reach with their arm and go, can I touch that rock or how far do I have to go to reach that rock and to put the instruments against it? And this concept of embodied cognition has been fundamental in um, the um, change perspective of intelligence and reasoning 
over the last 30 years. And it's gone by, one name it's gone by is Situated Cognition. And, and I had a book in the late 90s by that title. So this perspective that I had referred to came from the social scientists in the late 80s. And there were philosophers and there were psychologists who had been saying some of these things for many years, but they all came together in cognitive science in the 90s. And I was starting to see not only was this concept visible in, in, in the, the way the sciences spoke, but it was necessary for there to succeed in doing their work. They had to get into the body of the rover. They had to be able to project themselves as being the rover and, and so that they could know what was possible and to, to put themselves as if they were properly, so that they could become engaged and say, what would I do next? Where would I go? What, what interests me as I look around me here? And so each person would do that. Um, and the way the rover was designed, and this was a genius of Steve Squires, it allowed that. And the way he put the teams together allowed that. So if you were um, a geologist, you could get on the geochemist team, the, 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 uh, the soils and mineralogy team, if you wanted. You, you didn't have to be a specialist. If you felt you could make a contribution, you could participate. And rather than saying that the groups uh, were uh, defined according to the instruments, so that you know, you, your group is responsible for the panoramic camera, and your group is responsible for the drill, that's not the way they work. They, the, as Squires said, the entire rover was at the disposal of everyone. Now, you had to decide um, where <laughs> we had to work as a group. And that's the, uh, the paradox that I mentioned about uh, they're not off scurrying and doing stuff alone. So you had to, on the one hand, engage yourself into the moment, but then you had to engage yourself with what other people were saying and their perspectives. And so that the rover, of course, in some real sense, embodied the entire group. And Squires used the phrase group mind that... Uh, he was enthralled with how the, he had managed to get 75 people thinking and putting their heads together so that the rover's intelligence was now 75 people with all of their different specialties uh, operating together. And he, he and the group uh, had a, a little mantra for this that I really liked. And it was one instrument, one team. <laughs> and I recognized immediately what they were saying, because almost all of the other NASA space missions have been many instruments, many teams. And if you look at Cassini today, orbiting Mars, orbiting Saturn, sorry, um, many instruments, many teams, and they don't decide necessarily, they have to come to an agreement as a whole, how they will target Cassini and which moon will we come in close to and what angle will the spacecraft be as it next circles around uh, near uh, flies by Titan, one of the, the moons. But it's always my team, my instrument versus your instrument, uh, my specialty against yours. And, and I might be overstating it a bit, but it's a very different organization. Um, 
And there's a question as to whether the current Mars mission might also be like that, uh, organized more by uh, instruments rather than holistically in a Humboldtian manner of, uh, of operating as one group. So I have to bring up the one more point, and that was the, the blending, uh, the Nietzsche's. And so what I, I came to see in, in interviewing people is they experience this tension for sure. Uh, their the geologist could be very frustrated that uh, he can't just get the rover to go up to a hill in a couple of days, but would have to wait three or four months to get the survey that he knew was important for doing his work. And you had many other conflicts across the team. Uh, so they had to uh, submerge their individual um, perspectives, but then they had to know when to speak up. Um, and as I said, it's very different from being out there working alone as a field scientist. You had to think, how do I fit into this group? And I most have to thank Sherry Turkle for uh, getting me onto the perspective of identity. When she heard me speak uh, very early on, it was about 2005, 2004, about my, my thoughts about this project. She was doing a book about um, identity and technology. And uh, so she gave me a set of initial questions that I mentioned in the preface that were um, very helpful in my interviews of the scientists. So that's why I got into what I called the personal scientist, one of the chapters, uh, to know enough to, to ask them, what else are you working on besides this mission? What, what other interests do you have? And, and, uh, and then to see that you know, they were real people, that the mission was, it was part of who they were, but it, but it wasn't the whole story. Now, you've mentioned um, Stephen Squires, you've mentioned these interviews, and this is actually a perfect segue into one of the things that I actually wanted to ask you about, especially because ethnography is such an important part of the project, and um, you emphasize the importance. Can you talk a little bit um, about, I know, and I know we could talk for another hour about this, so I know it's a little unfair to ask you to talk about it briefly, but I'm going to do so anyway. Um, can you talk a little bit about how you selected the interviewees for the book, and um, perhaps more specifically, did any specific moments during any of the interviews change the way you were conceptualizing the project or do any of them stand out for you as being foundational in the way you were thinking about the work that the book was doing? Oh, you know, every single one, every person. I was so excited. There's a lot of effort as you may know yourself. These interviews were generally um, about an hour and 15 minutes long. I think I dragged Squires to an hour and a half. And I transcribed most of them. Uh, most, I, they were all transcribed, but almost um, every part of them word for word. Um, but so in how the people were chosen, it's a little bit as you might expect. You start with the people you know. So I was very fortunate that um, I worked at Ames um, Research Center. Um, at Moffett Field near San Jose, California. And um, so I knew um, three of the people who were on the, the science team were there, and, and I knew them quite well. So they were obvious candidates. And one of the uh, three people was uh, Mike Sims, was um, a computer science um, artificial intelligence uh, researcher who was part of my work group, actually, at Ames. <laughs> 
So he provided a good counterpoint to include um, an AI guy who was on the science team, uh, very unusual in, in that sense that he had that role. And Natalie Cabral, who has done very uh, famous uh, research of uh, high uh, lakes in the mountains, uh, diving and exploration of um, biological uh, forms that are found in these lakes. Uh, and Dave Demeray, who called himself uh, a biogeochemist. Mm-hmm. Uh, so each of them took, they, they um, so they were, there was a matter of convenience um, and that was just a starting point. But also, when you do a, a, a book like this or any kind of an ethnographic work, you're having to think about, well, what's the logic of my interviews? I'm not doing a survey here. I did not survey the science team. I chose a representative group. And so this kind of emerged. And what I realized is that age was a... Uh, a kind of salient aspect that was being handed to me as a kind of a gift. Um, so when I was asking around for um, other people that I might interview who lived in the area so I could go and visit them directly, I was told about Michael Carr, who lived about five miles from my house in Woodside, California. Um, and I was told that he had just retired. And I said, oh, that's perfect. He was one of the leaders of the science team when I was in Pasadena in 2004, and now he's retired and he's in his early 70s. So I went over to his home and he's got horses in his backyard and, and uh, you know, he gave me quite a perspective. So, um, and that led to, oh, I need someone who's much younger uh, on the other end of their career. And I, re- I was there were a few people who were suggested and I recalled in the back of my mind seeing a woman talking to Jim Rice, a geologist. Um, and I found out this was Eileen Yanks and she was part of what was called the second team or the second round scientists who were brought on after the mission began. And she was at a much earlier stage in her career. So that, that became a part of it age to, to get people at different stages in their career because I was going to be interested in their identity and uh, how they related to being an explorer and and doing Mars science. Uh, so I think I did. I hit on all of the, the aspects there. Oh yeah, yeah. And and I'll um, mention. You know, it's impossible for us to hit on all the aspects, <laughs> right? I mean, the book. There's so much. There's a whole chapter devoted to that. There's a whole chapter devoted to the embodied experience, as you mentioned before, of using this rover. There's a chapter devoted to the kind of interdisciplinary range. There's a chapter looking specifically at the engineers. But this. Oh, is- the engineers. Yes, I should have mentioned that. I realized that, um, so I wrote a book chapter for Sherry Turkle, and then that became the precise uh, proposal for the NASA History Division. And then when you start thinking about a book, you realize, um, well, I can do better than six interviews, and what else would I like to do? And that became obvious. I have to include some engineers. And uh, that's when um, there there were two people who were then uh, added uh, at that point from Pasadena. Now, they provide very, very, really important perspective for me to see 
how did this mission relate to what we had done before with Mars Pathfinder and, and so on, and, and how the engineers related to the rover in a very different way. So uh, this notion that they would think about the, the rover as a, a team member, as a collaborator, and that's one of the things that I, I, I got into in the book. What are um, uh, what are maybe some of the other elements of the experience of the engineers versus the scientists that struck you as being crucial to the way you were thinking about the project and the phenomena that you were writing about? So if we just switch I, to the engineers for a moment. I think there's two things. And one is for people to realize that, um, you know, imagine running your car for um, nine years uh, out in the desert without ever being able to change the oil or tune it up, or if anything goes wrong, to actually be there to fix it. And that's what we've been doing with Opportunity, the uh, Mars Exploration Rover that is still running on Mars. It's coming around to its um, 10th anniversary. It's hard to believe. And uh, so they have to do diagnostics and changes through the programming to deal with uh, what is, I mean, I think we could fairly call an old and becoming decrepit rover on the surface of Mars. And so this rover is lacking, you know, one of its wheels doesn't turn properly and it has to go backwards and the arm doesn't retract and some of the instruments don't work. So they have to make a, a rover into a whole thing that can be programmed and still used. And talk about heroics. I, their, their capability to, um, to not lose one of these things. I mean, you could make a very simple mistake and lose uh, the ability to communicate with a rover and your, uh, you know, your original $400 million investment is, is gone. So they had to be very careful, and, and their abilities over the years is just remarkable. Um, the, the other thing I would point out is if you're an engineer, and uh, many of them did not spend nine years working on the mission. They've gone on to work on other missions so that you bring in different people. But over a, a certain period of time, you, you start to understand the interests of the scientists. So you can anticipate that what they might want to do. And you can help them by making suggestions about uh, what instruments will be well positioned um, to anticipate, for example, that, um, oh, if they want to do something, the sun should be shining on that part of the rock or the sun, it should be in the shade. So it should be done in the morning were done in the afternoon on Mars. And they would lead the scientists along in that way and, and really participate in the work. So as we come to the final two chapters of the book, um, there's one theme, at least, that emerges as being really, really important um, to the message that I think you leave readers with, to the work that's happening in this part of the book, and to what we take away from this story, at least one of the things that we take away. And that's the importance of the aesthetic experience that undergirds and that permeates this whole process and this whole project. So chapter nine specifically delves into the non-technical dimensions of the scientist's experience, both the personal and the public experiences of this project. And it focuses in particular on aesthetic experience. You mention um, 
repeatedly in this chapter and in a way very powerful, the importance of not just the sort of impulses of the scientists here individually, but specifically of poetry, of the aesthetics of the images, of the ways that the scientists are relating to this project and to themselves in terms of a kind of more poetic, romantic experience of what's going on here. So I wonder if you could... um, for us as we come to, um, or as we near the conclusion of our conversation, talk about any elements of the importance of the aesthetic experience of the scientists, of the mission that you feel is really crucial for listeners to understand as we understand the work that the project is doing. Mm -hmm. And I think that question really, again, it gets to what it means to do a good ethnography, but also what it means to be a good scientist. That ultimately, you have to be true to yourself, and you have to be relating to your personal experience. And so for me, and now I mean my personal experience in thinking about the the, the rover scientist experience, as someone who had been excited about the space program from the 1960s, and we're going back a bit, I knew that it was about the images, about um, the the feeling of exploring, of discovering, of of being somewhere for the first time, um, of the of the aesthetics of of these images, of seeing the rings of, of Saturn and and. Um, and so on. Um, and yet, when you look at the space program and how the budget was determined and how Washington works, it's very sterile and formal and very book and school-like. And it's as if, and I should say it is, it is as if, it is a fact that you cannot stand up in Washington, D.C. as a congressman and say, we should go to Mars because it's exciting. It's a new future for humankind. We are, it, it is a beautiful place. And if you like the Southwest Desert, you're going to love Mars. You can't do that. You have to say, oh, we are going to increase human knowledge and it will advance our understanding. You know, you have to speak in, in, this, in this way that is really deadening, and it's been deadening for the space program. And what I could see is that the, the science, any scientist who's part of a mission lives through this dichotomy of their personal experience where they are thrilled. And they are explorers. And you can read, for example, Natalie Cabral lays it out. Uh, she says it so well in the interviews that I have in the book. Uh, and so certainly all of them do that. And they're very aware, though, that they can only sell the mission on these pure scientific terms. Well, what I was struck by is that Squires, um, really, he's now the head of the NASA um, advisory Council, and so he has you know, reached an he's has important stature, and I think he's done so well because people recognize that he's willing to just speak straightforward about things. And he told me how we climbed this hill, and we took a photograph, and it's just like if you were out hiking and you get to stand at the highest point. You might be in awe 
by the view and you'll take a picture. And, and he says right there, it doesn't necessarily have any scientific value, that photograph, but you have to do it. And it's okay to do it. You know, he's almost like pleading that um, it's okay for us to be taking pictures that are aesthetic, that are artistic. And he at Cornell and Jim Bell, uh, who was a professor there at the time, um, organized an art exhibit in uh, the, the art museum, as I understand, with the pictures that they had taken. And Jim Bell, who was uh, uh, one of the leads for the panoramic camera um, on the Mars rovers, he wrote a book called um, what was it? The Photography on Mars, or The First Photographer on Mars, um, something to that effect, um, where he meant himself and the team. And it wasn't the rover was the photographer. They were photographers. And, and what, so what I say in the book is I quote Squires as saying, it's okay to, to do that. And I add, and it's okay to say that. It's okay to say we did it because it was fun, because it was exciting. Um, and it was part of our experience. Uh, and that's why we do these missions. It's not just for the science. Great. Now, one of the things, as this, my final question to you before we um, before we wrap up and I, we get to our concluding questions, one of the things I specifically in the last chapter of the book speaks to this. So I think you you say something like a poetic presentation of the goals and accomplishments may be necessary and also valuable for realizing the vision of space exploration. So in addition to this, because um, the book ends by looking ahead to the future of scientific exploration systems, what are um, some of the other most important implications of your study for how we understand and approach future explorations of Mars and perhaps beyond? Well, one of the things that I was able to accomplish uh, was in some later follow-up interviews where I asked, I, I wanted to get at beyond what the scientists were quoted as saying in the newspapers. Oh, we could have done so much more if we were there. We could do in a day what the rover took a month to do. And I knew in some respects that was true in terms of mobility, but it was very, uh, it was incorrect uh, in terms of the instruments. Because for example, some of the instruments you had to hold in place for hours to hold the camera in one spot. And that was much more suited for robotic laboratory, even if you were there. So I needed to get out, really, how did we need to improve the technology to do a better field study. And, and so I got into that, into the nature of drilling, for example, and mobility to be able to go places and, and, and so on. Um, and the analysis then becomes a matter of, um, because now you're trying to figure out, should we send, should we put money into sending people? Or is it more likely that the robot, robotic capabilities will get so good that it won't be necessary, even though the scientists will be the first to say, we want to go anyway. Um, as as uh, Chris McKay said, and I quote him there, and he said this in many uh, settings, he said, even if a robot could go to uh, Paris and uh, enjoy the food and drink the wine and tell me all about it, 
I'd still want to go myself. <laughs> and, and I thought that captured it. But I did, I did do a little analysis there, which is, you know, it's all speculative of how fast are we, is the technology going to advance versus uh, how fast will our capability to send people on rockets, perhaps sent by Elon Musk with his company SpaceX. How quickly will Elon Musk be there? Uh, versus JPL with the, the advanced rovers. And, and I, I think it's a toss-up. Uh, these rovers get more and more expensive. They take longer and longer to develop. Um, we, uh, we might very well find that we can send the people um, sooner than we'll have those robots ready to go. So, Bill, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. There's a ton of stuff in the book that we didn't get to, and I've, we've just kind of scratched the surface of, of some of it, and I hope listeners will obviously go and read the book as kind of an entry point. But given that, is there anything in particular that we didn't have a chance to talk about but that you'd like to mention, and again, perhaps especially for listeners who haven't yet had a chance to read the book? Well, I think... Um as I've made a number of presentations of the book over the last uh, year or two, um, I've come to realize that especially for people interested in robotics, um, the angle that I, I put front and center for them is how the robots brought the scientists together and enabled people from different disciplines to collaborate in doing the exploration. So the idea of the rover as a collaboration tool was a very interesting twist. And, and you see 180 degrees from the original, the robot as being the geologist. Instead, it's simply, you can think of it as, you know, when we think of a collaboration tool, well, Skype or, uh, you know, using uh, social media, those are collaboration tools. So that the rover itself was a, a means for people to communicate with each other and work together. Uh, that's a, a very important perspective to keep in mind of what we've accomplished. Great. So now that the book is out, and congratulations, as I've already mentioned, it's a really rich book, and it's also a very, very enjoyable read. What's next for you? Are there any project or, pro or uh, projects that are currently inspiring you? Uh, well, I'd like to continue my work in studying field science on Earth, <laughs> and I haven't uh, uh, really gone as far there as I might. And I, I'm talking to some folks who do work in oceanography because uh, uh, that seems to be a place where robotics are becoming is becoming more and more important. And some issues have arisen in that uh, some of the young um, biologists, oceanographers, are not able to go undersea. Uh, in submersibles as they have uh, in the past because they're using robots. And how does that change their personal experience and their ability to do work uh, undersea? So that is one way that I might t uh, take this topic forward. Well, that sounds totally fabulous. And we'll look forward to reading that book. And I look forward to hopefully talking with you about that as well uh, when you're done with that. Thank you. Um, congratulations. And it's really been a pleasure. Thanks so much for, especially, as I said, on a Saturday, making time to talk with me. Well, thank you, Carla. I, I really appreciate the, your uh, enthusiasm and, and uh, interest in the book and get, giving me this opportunity. You've been listening to new books in science, technology, and society. Thanks very much for joining us, and we'll see you again next time.